You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that stars may keep spinning fast long into old age. Astronomers just spotted a star that's in its twilight years that spins way faster than anyone expected it to be able to. Uh, They say this process of slowing rotation that we assumed happened indefinitely over the lifetime of a star may be interrupted in the middle of the star's life. And this is from the Space Institute in Boulder. And the researchers studied a, car, a star called 94 Aquari AA, about 69 light years from us. And its color and brightness say that it's part of a star's life cycle in the subgiant stage, which is at the end of a star's life as it starts running out of fuel. And everything we know says that young stars rotate quickly and they slow down as they age, they lose their angular momentum. And that's how we tell how old a star is. And what happened here is that they figured out that this star is about 6.2 billion years old, 1.2 times the mass of the sun. And it should be rotating once every 78 days, but magically, for reasons no one has yet been able to determine, it rotates once every 47 days. In other words, this star apparently successfully practiced anti-aging. It is breaking the rules of what stars are supposed to do. So what does that mean for you? Well, maybe it just might be possible at all different levels for things to age differently than you expect. And what does that have to do with today's guest? Like, all right, is this another one of those astronomer guys? Because I did have a really cool interview uh, with an astronomer. Uh, who runs the largest space telescope in Chile. But no, you'd be wrong if that was your guess. Because we're going to talk about longevity. And I'm not even going to call it anti-aging because being against aging doesn't really make a lot of sense because wisdom comes with age. Like It's nice to be wise. And I certainly didn't know a few things when I was 20 that I know now that I sure wish I knew back then. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health/dave for an exclusive 10% off. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. 
They live for a long time and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Synalytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Synalytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synalytic. It's upped my energy level even more and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synalytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com Dave. Use code Dave. Today's guest is none other than Dr. David Sinclair. And he's best known for his extensive research on lifespan extension, treatment of diseases for aging, a guy whose work I have enjoyed for many years, a PhD professor from the Department of Genetics at Harvard and co-director of Harvard's Paul F. Glenn Center for the Biology of Aging, the co-creator of the journal Aging. He's co-founded several biotech companies, three dozen patents, Time Magazine's list of 100 most influential people in the world, and for the last 20 years, he's just literally been hacking aging. And that is uh, a really big, a really big thing to say when you say what happens when someone at, uh, at his level just focuses on a problem with the right resources. And what happens is, well, something you can read about now because he's got a brand new book out, uh, which I was really grateful to get an early copy of. And it's called Lifespan, the revolutionary science of why we age and why we don't have to. And I just got to tell you, before you even have him come onto the show, you are going to run read this book because I don't care how old you are, whether you're in your teens or whether you're 80. We know things we didn't know 10 years or 20 years or even 50 years ago about aging that are actually useful. And there is no more credible person on earth than David Sinclair to talk about it. David, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Dave. Yeah, you're very kind. Uh, it's great to be on your show. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's uh, it's it's an honor to have you on. Um, I mean, you've you've been on 60 Minutes and places like that, so I mean, you've you're no stranger to, to people talking about your work. What's new? What drove you to finally write this this big book and and make some really bold claims at the beginning of it? What, what, why now? Uh, well. Partly, it's, it, it was just good timing. I've been wanting to write a book for 10 years, uh, and I wrote parts of it. Uh, but the science kept going faster than I could write the book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and uh, so I have a wonderful co-author, Matt LaPlante, who helped me keep up with the science. And he was part of the discovery process. When my student made a big discovery, um, I'll, I'll talk about it in a minute, uh, it, it was a real breakthrough. And usually it's just myself and my student who gets to experience what it's like to make a discovery like that. Uh, I immediately called up Matt uh, and said, hey, can you document this? Let's put this in the book. So this is one of the few scientific books where I'm not writing about things that were discovered 10 years ago and vetted by scientists. I'm actually putting things in the book. People can read about this before most scientists in the whole world have even seen them. And that's really unusual. It just happened that I was writing this right at the time where I've made some of the biggest discoveries of my career. That is rare and unusual. And it shows in the book because... Uh, you know, like you, I, I stay up on research, maybe not quite to the degree you do because I'm running uh, Bulletproof and, and whatnot, but I'm I'm pretty into it. And, and I get to talk with some of the same smart people you do. 
And when I work on books, uh, there's usually a good number of studies right as we're almost sending it to print. I'm like, wait, we have to include this one because it just hit the presses and it matters and it, it's another little point and it's always an, an area of frustration for me. But for you, you're basically two years ahead of that uh, with the new book because you're taking stuff right from the lab that would take a while to hit you know, the journal Nature or wherever that could be published. Well, exactly. This latest discovery that's in the book, we just put it out uh, on on a preprint so people can, can download load that if they like. Uh, just Google my name um, and a, a site called BioArchive, B-I-O-R-X-I-V. Uh, and it's under review at Nature. We'll see how it goes. Uh, hopefully, it'll come out uh, towards the end of this year. Wow, um, it'll come out after it's your book. <laughs> it's, that's crazy. I hope that it doesn't affect my ability to publish. Uh, the book actually went faster than I thought, uh, and the research was done in more detail than I thought. But, you know, again, I'm I'm more about changing the world than I am about publishing. Uh, as a scientist, I'm not here to just put things on shelves in libraries. Yeah. In fact, if it did affect your ability to publish, it would be the best thing that ever happened to scientific publishing. Because you could say, uh, maybe our process of getting knowledge to the market is broken. Uh, because it takes a very long time for what happens to get published and go through a vetting process. And we all have learned that the vetting process isn't very good anyway, at least in some journals versus others. So for, for people listening who don't know about that, Talk through why it's even a concern about, hey, I, I just I shared this with the world. Why would you not get you know your scientific gold star for that? Well, sci scientists have come out of, they're basically, a, a, I'm a monk in a monastery. So scientists are in this cloister, and we don't like to share things with the world until uh, they're fully vetted by other scientists. And certainly, uh, you don't want to be uh, preempting a discovery, which the journals have historically reserved the right to tell the world about. Um, and so I can't go into too much detail about the research. Otherwise, journals can reject your work simply on the basis that it's not novel anymore. And so we have to be very careful, especially in, a, in today's times where it's very easy to put out a tweet or a podcast where you could upset the journals. But we're in an extremely weird world right now where some journals are embracing this and actually encourage you to talk about it and put out these preprints before they're published, because that actually helps the journals figure out what's interesting to the world and what isn't. And that's also one of the ways they vet good science as well. Yeah, I, I think the popularity contest of, of something, how many people are interested and does it pass muster would be fantastic because sometimes there's weird stuff out there, but a lot of people wouldn't know just how filtered what they see is and how a few people running journals will change the direction of study for 10 or 20 years of academia just by a few key decisions and they don't know what those decisions are ahead of time <laughs> that's exactly true they're very very powerful people and if you get a bad editor a whole field can be can be basically derailed or they publish something negative and everyone reads it and believes that for another decade the other thing that's fascinating about science is like you said dave I see things that sometimes are 10 years ahead of what the public sees. And that's another reason I wanted to write this book is that my head is spinning at all of the things going on in my field. A lot of it isn't published and a lot of it isn't put, put out in the media. Uh, and I wanted everyone to know how exciting this area is and how, how close we are to things being actionable. Um, even in their daily lives right now, we can talk about the kind of things that, that I've learned from reading tens of thousands of papers about how we can slow down aging right now. You said words that are manna from heaven. We can slow down aging right now. 
Uh, so this isn't a futuristic thing. And you've you've actually said in your book, aging is a disease, and that disease is now treatable, which is really bold <laughs> for someone in your academic position to say. Um, aging is not in the the DSM, which doctors use to diagnose things. Uh, and I've believed for years that, that aging is maybe a collection of diseases. But do you think aging is really a disease? Well, we can call it whatever we, whatever we want. We're human beings. We make the rules. Right? <laughs> and what doctors have done, um, and, and also the, the World Health Organization, um, they have a book of diseases. It started with, I think, 400, and it's grown to 14,000 different conditions. But they've left aging out. Right. Um, and, and the, the only reason they've left it out, actually, if you go dig deep into what the definition of aging is versus, versus disease, the difference is that if 49%, 49.9% of people get a debilitating condition, we call that a disease, and we throw billions of dollars against it and, uh, and have foundations. If it, it ekes over to 51%, then we call that aging. And we accept it as normal and accept, and uh, <laughs> we don't do anything about it. That's arbitrary. Uh, and I think it's actually worse because the more people that get a, a terrible condition, the, the more we should study it and the more resources we should throw at it. it. It's sort of like the old story of lemmings, you know, the, the little fish where they all come out of the water. One of them goes out of the water. Let's all go out of the water and die. And uh, if everyone does it, it's normal. And I... I look at relative ranges of relative ranges of hormones as an example of that. Well, all old guys have really low testosterone, therefore that's normal. What do you say when you hear something like that? Like, like what goes through your mind, and then what do you? What's your take on that, for instance? Well, I, I would challenge everybody who's listening um, and ourselves here, right, in this interview. Look around the room that we're in, um, assuming you're indoors. Ask yourselves. What about your current situation is natural? <laughs> Find one thing. I mean, maybe this desk is partly wood. Actually, it might even be plastic. But there's nothing about our lives that we haven't changed. The clothes, the, the headphones, the supercomputers in our pockets, we change the world to make our life better. So don't tell me that just because something is normal, we should accept it. I mean, if we want it to be normal, we should be out in the wild being eaten by tigers and dying from an infected splinter. And I don't think anybody wants to go back to that kind of a world. Ah, oh, man, it makes me relax to hear you say that. <laughs> uh, yes, we've hacked everything uh, in our environment. And somehow this is a sacred cow. You studied this for 20 years. When you started studying aging and longevity, did you actually get respect for that from your colleagues? Or did they think you were a little bit off your rocker? Oh, I still get little respect for this career. <laughs> I'm at Harvard Medical School, and I've still got colleagues who look down on me for this. But but they're, they're older colleagues who have a harder time sure. seeing because they're aging, right? <laughs> I'm kidding. Oh, uh, yeah, that, there's that, and there's uh, who are you, this upstarts, thinking that we can tackle all major diseases with with a single pill. We know that we have to hit these diseases one by one on on the head like a whack-a-mole game. Uh, and I'm coming along saying that's not going to extend our lifespans on average more than a couple of years. Cure cancer, a couple of years. Cure heart disease, maybe three years. That's not the way to massive changes in our health spans. And so th there's this uh, pushback from colleagues. But it was much worse when I started. I was a 24-year-old kid saying we can solve this. We can find genes that are responsible for longevity. 
which we did find, uh, which is what's exciting about the field now. Um, but actually, the, what's interesting is that the field has been publishing in the world's leading journals for at least 30 years now. Um, and only finally, we're getting the respect that I think the field is deserving. Yeah, it's something that blew me away in my, my 20s. I had like massive health problems. A, lo- a lot of the stuff that happens when you're old, I, I got to enjoy, even as a teenager, arthritis when I was 14, high risk of stroke and heart attack. So I have spent the last 20-something years hanging out with anti-aging researchers more on the, the Stanford side of things in a nonprofit. And I was just blown away to see this stuff as a, a non, I'm an engineer, but not a, a biologist uh, or a medical doctor or anything like that. And just over the course of, of a decade of reading and seeing this, I just realized there was a whole world that was disruptive and looked down on. And, and I'd go to my doctor and say, I'm taking vitamin C. And, and he'd say, you have to stop, it'll kill you. I'm like the disconnect is so broad uh, between the people who are the interface, the people that my parents go to, and most people go to to say, take care of my health, they not only showed a lack of interest in this stuff, they showed open disrespect. Uh, right. How, right. Well, the, okay. I teach medical students, so they're, I know how the system works. And, and the training is uh, doctors treat diseases. Okay. And if, you know, if someone comes along like me and says, Hey, if you take this or that, or you do this or that in your lifestyle, and you won't get these diseases till five, 10 years later, um, that's, that's not in the, typically in the purview of, of the mindset of your average uh, physician. And a good example is the drug metformin, which is yeah. a diabetes drug that millions of people have taken, uh, relatively safe. Uh, it's prescription only in this country. Some, you can get it over the counter. Uh, but I have people who talk to me uh, and ask me questions every week saying my doctor won't prescribe this to me because even though my blood sugar keeps going up and up and up, it hasn't hit the exact level where you would call me diabetic. And, and there's, there's, again, it's this arbitrary cutoff line where doctors are hesitant, if not vehemently opposed, to give, giving a medicine that would prevent you from actually getting the disease that is undoubtedly going to come. Uh, do you take metformin? Uh, I do. I do for, for that very reason that my blood sugar was headed straight up and uh, I wanted to prevent it. My father was doing well on it um, and I, I I don't have very good genes, so I, I, I need to actively work Got it. against them. So, so you take it for blood sugar and not as a preemptive anti-aging drug? Uh, well, it's both. It's, both, okay. it's really both. The, the data on metformin is really strong, stronger than even in mice. That I've looked at all the studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, as many as I can read. And there's tens of thousands of patients that have been looked at. And if you believe the results of those studies, diabetics who take metformin, the chance of getting cancer, heart disease, frailty, um, Alzheimer's actually goes down relative to those who don't take it. Uh, For diabetics, metformin's a a miracle drug, um, at least as much of a miracle drug as fasting. (laughs) But um, Right. And people say, aren't you taking a big risk taking this this drug, and just because something's called a drug, some, some something magical happens. It doesn't. It's nothing special. It's a molecule like anything else. And uh, I would say it's even more. It's safer than a lot of plant molecules yeah. we take as supplements, because so much is known about metformin. So what's the risk? Okay, the risk for me is, um, you know, it was done under doctor supervision. I'm monitoring my blood. It wasn't a huge risk. My liver enzymes were great, and so I'm, I'm suggesting that people shouldn't take this on a whim. It's not like popping popping, you know, uh, something that, that uh, you can buy 
at a, at a, at a candy store, I would actually not not pop, pop candy as as much as I would pop metformin. <laughs> That's more dangerous. Uh, so, what are the risks uh, for me? The risks were um, stomach upset, uh, feeling a bit queasy, losing my appetite. Losing my appetite was a great side effect. I've I've yeah. liked that. And, but contrast that with the risk. What's the risk if I don't do anything? I know for sure that by the time I hit 70, my chance of getting cancer has gone up a thousandfold from when I was 20. Smoking will only increase my chances by fivefold. So aging is the biggest risk for cancer. Chance of getting heart disease. I am going to get these diseases no matter what, right? Versus having an upset stomach. I mean, the risk reward is, is so great uh, <laughs> in terms of the reward that of course you would do it. And the cost is, you know, maybe a dollar a day if less, you know. So to me, you know, I do the science, I do the calculations. It's just a complete no-brainer. Now, I started taking metformin prophylactically. I, had, I was uh, pre-diabetic in my 20s. Uh, but I talked to the people at Biomarker Pharmaceuticals, the, the first people to say, oh, this anti-aging drug, metformin, uh, causes the same changes in gene expression as uh caloric restriction. There were these people in the 80s and early 90s who, there's still a few of them around, who would, I only eat 1,000 calories a day and a half for 10 years, and I'm cold all the time, but I'm going to live forever, and I'm really thin. And uh, I think there's there's newer technologies than that, but I took it for three or four years, and I quit taking it, uh, just in part because I felt like I didn't need it, and I, I was, my blood sugar, my fasting blood sugar is below 87 now, and I don't take metformin. Um, and the reason that I quit taking it is I saw a study that said that it, it reduced mitochondrial function and there's some things about vitamin B12 absorption. Uh, and it's one of those things I've wrestled with for 10 years when I'm looking at, okay, people who come to you know Dave's blog, let's talk openly. Okay, like, like it, it, it has both sides uh, of this, but what it's doing, you better handle AMPK one way or another, otherwise you're not going to like what happens to you. Do you tell people, you know, wait until your blood sugar, your fasting blood sugar gets 94 and then start thinking about it? Or, you know, what, what's your mindset? Because this is one of the hugest questions. I want to be, be right when I'm sharing knowledge about this because there are hundreds of thousands of people who listen to this who are going to say, I should go ask my doctor about this or I'm going to order it from India or somewhere. Yeah, right, right. Okay, so th thank you for letting me expound on this a little bit. Now, now there are some molecular downsides. So what metformin does amongst other things is it interferes with your mitochondria it will uh, block the activity of what's called complex one which is important for generating energy and one of the ways we think metformin works is it it lowers that energy chemical energy atp and in response your your body will will become more sensitive to to insulin uh, and that help, helps you with type 2 diabetes but the potential downside and there was a recent study about a month ago that showed that if you take metformin and you exercise, metformin will blunt some of the benefits of exercise on mitochondria. And so that that gives us a conundrum, right? So that, that it's not perfect. There's no perfect answer here. But what I've come to, and, and let's be clear, I, I'm doing this. It doesn't mean that it works for everybody. It doesn't mean that I'm recommending it. I'm a scientist and you know I'm trying to figure this, all, this stuff out before uh, time runs out for all of us. Um, and so what, what I'm doing with myself is I'm taking metformin on days uh, that I don't exercise. And often I'm not exercising because I'm on the road, I'm on planes. And that's my substitute for, for exercise. 
But if I do exercise hard, I will skip the metformin because it may blunt the effects. Thank you for saying that. Uh, Dr. Mercola and I were talking about it similarly. He's, he's become much more aggressive on his personal anti-aging. And, uh, and there's, there's, there's definitely evidence that if you're going to go to the gym, you probably skip your metformin. What about fasting? Do you practice intermittent fasting or 24-hour fasting or some other flavor of fasting personally? Uh, I do. I do. So I went through my 20s and 30s uh, just trying to, to stay slim. I didn't do anything formally. But the, the data has just been so clear in animals and increasingly in people uh, that spending part of the day or part of the week hungry is just as important, if not more important, than what you eat. And a, a good study came out from my friend uh, Rafael de Cabo at NIH. Again, this is these are mice, so it's not necessarily the same as us, but he found that mice on very different diets, different ratios of carbohydrate, fat, protein, uh, lived about the same length of time, actually identically. Uh, but what made a difference was when he gave them the food and how much they would gorge themselves. And the mice that were had a longer period of fasting were the ones that had the greatest benefit. Now, so extrapolating from that, among many other studies, um, I've been able to uh, skip at least one, perhaps two meals a day. If, if I'm good, it's difficult. Uh, I know that. It's not pleasant for most people, myself included. I do find it pretty easy to skip breakfast. I have, um, I'm here right, right here with a cup of coffee with a tiny bit of milk and I have a tiny bit of yogurt in the morning, like a couple of spoonfuls. Uh, I go through lunch often. I, I, I skip lunch because I'm so busy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I eat like a regular person at night, often perhaps a little too much because I'm you know out at restaurants probably a few times a week. But that's, that's what works for me. Um, I think if, if you could fast for two or three days uh, in a row, that would actually be better because it'll kick in what's called chaperone-mediated autophagy, which is the way the mm-hmm. cell digests misfolded protein. That would be even better. But I, I just don't have the, the, the stamina or the energy to go for that long, uh, unlike Peter Atia, our <laughs> friend, who, who does do that. Uh, and he says that day three is really quite uh, a different feeling than the first two days. Yeah. I, I do that as well. Um, I'll do, I probably not as often as Peter, but I, I definitely do uh, three day fasts uh, probably every couple months. Uh, usually when my wife and the kids are gone, I say, you know what? I, I love to cook, but I don't want to do any dishes. So I'm just going to do this. Um, the way I've found I can get through it is, uh, and some people say, but that's not fasting. I don't really care. I put, uh, I, I do coffee, obviously. Uh, but I put a little bit, I'm talking a half a teaspoon to a teaspoon of brain octane. Um, the, the stuff that I make that raises ketones and coffee by itself can raise ketones. So I find on, as long as I'm getting, we're talking maybe 30 or 40 calories that pretty much all goes to ketones. That bump in ketones means the amount of suffering and lack of energy is about zero. (laughs) So I just go through and then by day three, you don't care. Uh, but uh, it's it's definitely been one of the most anti-inflammatory things I've ever done. Uh, but your own practice there of just saying, you know, hey, I, I'm going to skip breakfast. I'm going to eat almost nothing for breakfast. You're saying that it it's what works for you. Now you must be drawing crazy labs on your own on your own blood and saying it works for you. What is the definition of working for you? What does that look like when you're measuring it? Uh, yeah, really good question. So my first and foremost, um, you know, I'm now 50 years old. I know what my body feels like when it's not healthy and when it is healthy. So if that's that's my main indicator. I'm also 
you know, increasingly biohacking, which is, you know, pretty common these days, right? Yeah. We've got the, <laughs> the wrist uh, devices, I've got the ring on my finger. So every morning I wake up and I find out how I've done overnight. I can see my resting pulse rate, my heart rate variability, all of that tells me, am I on the right track? Now, that doesn't tell me my blood sugar, it doesn't tell me my inflammation, so I need to delve deeper. And with that, I do blood tests, uh, you know, not super often. Uh, at, on average, it would probably be every four months or so, just to make sure that everything's okay. And I try to optimize what I'm doing. If I take a new supplement or, or I try new exercise regime, I want to make sure that that's all good. So I, I actually have blood tests for at least 30 markers going back to 2011. So I really know my body well and if it's doing well. And going back to the metformin story, what's important to know is, you know, you ask me, Dave, what's really important is why did I decide to take metformin? Now, if, if my blood sugar was low like yours and it was steady low, you know, there's no point in, in taking a medicine if you're already achieving the goal. Right. But mine was edging up month by month, year by year, and it was a straight line up. And it w I was headed for diabetes like my father had, my grandmother had at an early age. So for me, it made a lot of sense to, to try the metformin, to try and bring that back down, which worked for me, okay? Uh, it may not work for everybody. And we're all very different. We're different genetically. Women have an entirely diff uh, you know, additional X chromosome that we're quite different animals. We have different microbiomes. We live in different parts of the world. And so what, what I, I encourage people to do is to work with their doctors, work with their trainers, or work with their own uh, awareness of their body's health and try and optimize what works for them. I very much value that you're saying that because it is not the same for everyone. Uh, and it it's one of the reasons since I started Bulletproof, I've had so much pressure. Dave, give us the list of supplements you take. And I take about 150 a day. They've been carefully evolved with lab testing for a you know, a, a formerly obese, a six foot four, 200 plus pound guy with 10% body fat now, who used to probably be 40% or whatever it was, uh, with a history of autoimmunity. Like, trust me, you don't want to take mine if you're a 90 pound Asian woman. Like, you're just going to fill your pants and have even more expensive pee. Like, it's not okay. Right. right. Uh, and so I, I think, though, that that scares a lot of people away from anti aging because they're saying, well, I, this is one of the things my doctor can't tell me if I should take metformin, much less vitamin C these days. Uh, so they're seeking out functional medicine doctors or they're you know, going to the internet, which actually has good information on it. Dr. Google's kind of knowledgeable these days. Uh, but it does, it does breed to people doing things that just don't really work. Like, you know, mm -hmm. I, uh, just like I don't take any drugs ever, like you, you die of an infection, or I only eat plant-based proteins knowing that 99% of plant-based proteins will kill you. If you don't believe me, go out into the forest and eat some leaves and see uh, how long you live. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> it's like these rules are artificial. Yeah. So uh, how, how would you advise someone listening to this going, you know what, let's, let's say I, I'm 25 years old. Uh, and you know I, I, I'm not an infinite bucket of money at this point in my life. Uh, and I'd like to not get old what's your thought process? Now you're not going to say, you know, take supplement number one uh, or, or something other, I don't think, but what's the thought process? How, do, how would someone get started on just saying, you know, I, I want to, I, I don't want to die. Yeah. Uh, okay. So that I'm often asked, when should I start this or that? And there are some things that aren't, aren't worth trying until later. I think like metformin, you know, it's a drug. So in your twenties, I don't think that 
just my personal view is that's not necessary. But there are some things that we know work very well if you start early in, in animal studies. Uh, so we're extrapolating here. Uh, some things work the better the earlier you start. For instance, the, the dietary changes. The longer you're on a healthy diet in your lifespan and the longer you exercise the right way, the better. Uh, you can't start this at 80 and expect it to work as well as if you started when you're 20. So if, if I could go back to myself when I was 20, I would say, David, uh, don't eat as much, have periods of hunger, uh, don't eat as much meat. Um, yep. you, know, you don't have to avoid it, but but don't have meat with every meal like I used to. Uh, and I would say uh, I've been on resveratrol since I was in my early 30s. Yeah. It certainly hasn't done me any harm. Uh, <laughs> we have some new data in the lab that says that it, it is working the way we said it was through the sirtuin longevity pathway. I think that, that that's a pretty uh, safe place to start. Um, and I'd, I'd probably say that that's going to do you no so, harm. So you put run. people on resveratrol, basically grape seed or skin extract. And it, by the way, that's one of the very earliest compounds I took. I think when I was 19, uh, it started, I, I used to have these horrible chronic nosebleeds. Like every day my nose would just like start spraying blood. It's a sign of living in a place with toxic mold. It, it was it was actually kind of embarrassing. Like, oh, it's gone on a date. Never mind. I'm like sticking paper towels <laughs> in my nose. And I noticed very reliably uh, that uh, resveratrol, or at the time they mostly just said it was grape seed extract or grape skin extract, it would fix the problem. It would take two days of taking it, and suddenly I was fixed. And I just remember going back on that. So that's something, in fact, it is that and vitamin C are the two longest lived supplements I've taken since then for now almost three decades. Right. Um, okay. Yeah, right. So the, we have some pretty long term, at least anecdotal evidence, and, and the mouse studies have been pretty clear okay. that there's there's no downside so that that's one that i would say but in general i think you know read read your book dave uh my book's coming out yeah. it's got some some hints on how to how to exercise and, and eat well and fast uh but figure out what works for your body as well um and there are some some companies that offer and in full disclosure i've invested in one of them uh called inside tracker uh, you can see what's happening on the inside when you try something uh, and you just want to make sure that you're not doing your body any harm when you try something. Inside Tracker, this is a blood testing? It is. Okay. It, it, it's um, often used by athletes to make sure that what they're doing physically and uh, with supplements is, is optimal. All right. I love that idea. Um, I actually have the URL vitamintests.com that I registered in 1990-something because I've always thought we need more tests to see what levels you should take. So I'm actually going to check that out. Uh, and there's also the whole gut biome thing, which I know is a, a, an area of interest for you and for me. And, and I've first advised and then eventually invested in biome uh, where we're saying, oh, what is the metabolic activity of a bacteria in the gut? You know, wh what actually, what does resveratrol do to the gut? What what do, do any of these polyphenols do? And I, I, I feel like we are just scratching the surface. Last week, I read about a paper that you probably saw two years ago about these very small proteins, less than 50 uh, amino acids stuck together that are made in huge numbers in the gut and in the body that no one measured before because they were too small. <laughs> like, what do you right. think about stuff like that? Like, like, do you ever worry? Good God, we missed that. And that's where all the good stuff is. Oh, yeah. Well, my, my lab has found about 2,000 small proteins that nobody knows exist yet. Was that your paper? Um, it might have been. I didn't see your name on it, but I, we didn't look at the names that closely. Oh, uh, no, I haven't published this work okay. yet, but we have a big grant from the government uh, to do this work. We had to use... Um, bioinformatics, something that you're familiar mm -hmm. with. 
to find these genes, we compared our genomes to chimp and macaque and, and found which small regions of our genome were conserved. Uh, it just turns out that the algorithms written to find genes in the first draft of the human genome, anything that was smaller than 300 letters was discarded because it was in the noise of the genome. And we now, we scientists are going back saying, hey, maybe there was something in that uh, small uh, 300 base pairs. And there, there's thousands of them that we've missed. And I think that uh, there's a whole going to be a whole new set of discoveries and, and drugs that are now found in that world. Well, one of my favorite uh, small peptides is a, a tripeptide found in collagen protein. It's three amino acids. That's what you know, tripeptide means, right? And it's it's kind of been overlooked. But the cool thing about things that small is they can pass the gut lining if they don't get digested, especially if you package them well. So I'm I'm thinking, wow, there's a whole another 10 years of exploration and expansion of what we can do with our bodies that just, I mean, you're already, of course, discovering new ones, but we're just on the edge of that. Do you think we're going to hit a, a place where we, we finally figure all this stuff out, where there there aren't additional layers of the onion that we peel, we get down like, you know, we, we actually know what's going on all the way down to the subcell. Uh, no, no, <laughs> we're, we're the most complicated uh, entities in the universe. Uh, and we can barely model the interaction of two atoms. So we got a long way to go. Yes. Uh, certainly not, not within the, the, the next few thousand years, but, but we will be able to catalog everything in the body within the next hundred years, Yeah, I believe. But then figuring out how they work, how they interact, it's far too complicated even for advanced AI to figure out that easily. I think we, we would be quite arrogant to think that we can figure this out easily. But what's exciting, and, and going back to the 20-year-old uh, point, we now live in a world where we we can find information. 20 years ago, when I was uh, young, you could not find this information easily. It was, it was held in libraries. You couldn't get access to the journals. Microfish. Were, you had to pay for them. <laughs> it, it was a nightmare. But fortunately, we live in a world where you can listen to educated podcasts uh, or podcasts that, that speak directly with scientists like this one. And, and they're a blessing. So now somebody can educate themselves about the actual facts rather than formally having to read a headline and a distorted story in a newspaper where often it was just a, a bunch of BS or, or, uh, or hype. And so 20-year-olds can now read science, they can educate themselves, and as we go forward, we're going to be able to just learn more and more about what, what works. Now, there's a large population or segment of the population that doesn't give a damn about their health, yeah. but there's increasingly a number, number of people that do care. And those are the people that now have access to the world's knowledge and can, can do this stuff. I mean, look, think about this. We know more about our cars, how they operate, than we do about our bodies. You've got a dashboard on your car every day. We don't know what's going on. We maybe do a blood test every year. And that's, that's very superficial. We need to move to a world where we know just as much, if not more, about our bodies, what's going on, so we can get ahead of the problems before they actually cause us to get diseases. I, I really like that perspective. We, we do need a dashboard. You mentioned that you draw 30 different variables on your, your lab tests. And I'm not going to ask you to list all 30 because that would become a boring podcast, although a fascinating blog post. Um, but give me the top five markers that you think matter most for your health that you, could, you draw from lab tests. Yeah. So we just published a paper last year, um, which people can, can find online. The, the top five that, that trend are associated with longevity are blood glucose levels. Uh, that's the, the strongest link to longevity. 
you don't want high levels. Uh, the next is uh, inflammation. So you can measure uh, CRP, HCRP. Okay, that's a big one. Keep that down. Um, uh, TNF-alpha is another inflammatory marker, which is, is bad. That tr- goes up with aging and seems to predict longevity. Uh, in males, testosterone. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked about uh, supplementing with testosterone, but but your levels of testosterone do seem to associate with health and longevity yeah. uh, as they go down. So I, I look at that. Um, vitamin D levels, interestingly, as they go down, they predict uh, a decline in health. Um, and so I measured that as well. So those are all good things. And then the final one uh, it's important is liver function. Uh, any sign of liver dysfunction is, is a bad sign because I'm not saying that, that liver dysfunction itself will cause aging, but these are canaries in the coal yeah. mine that tell you that something's going wrong. That's a fascinating list. I, I would have expected there to be homocysteine on the list as an inflammation For, for sure, for heart, right, right, for heart function. I do measure that as well, but that one, I haven't seen data that associates that with longevity, uh, but I agree that that one I do monitor for sure. Okay. The the ones that have been on, on my list for 25 years are CRP, uh, for sure, C-reactive protein. It's, it's, if that's up, you've either been injured or you've got something bad happening that you don't know about, right? Uh, and then uh, testosterone, for sure, D3, and then uh, homocysteine, and then LPPLA2, which is, uh, for people listening, going, Dave, my eyes just rolled. That's an enzyme that's released when something is damaging the lining of your arteries. So if you're worried about high cholesterol and your cholesterol is high, but you have no evidence of damage to your arteries, you should ask yourself, okay, what are my other concerns about my cholesterol? What are do you do you monitor LPPLA two at all? Is that one of your things? I don't think it's on the list actually. Um, Interesting. Cool. I should recommend recommend that. Yeah. So the people who do my tests, what they've done that's interesting is. Uh, so most doctors, actually, I would argue that there's no doctor in the world that can have the world's knowledge at its fingertips, whereas these these organizations, they punch your numbers in and it comes back with recommendations to say, here's what is optimal for your age, your demographic, your sex. Uh, yeah. And also, based on the scientific literature, here's a suggestion on what you can do to try to optimize that. You're out of the boundaries of what's optimal to get you back. And what, what fascinates me and the reason that I helped um, get this company off the ground initially was you go to a doctor. I, let me let me get something clear for all the people listening. I have nothing against doctors. In fact, I train, help train them at Harvard yeah, Medical School. Right. <laughs> but I'm trying to improve the medical system. So, you know, doctors, it's a terribly tough job. So nothing against that profession at all. It's really hard. But what the what's difficult in their profession is they, they don't know everything. They cannot. So what, how to augment that is a, is a knowledge base like these companies have built that says based on a million publications and 100,000 other people who've put their data in, what works for them? And here's what might work for this patient or this individual. And I think that's the way science and medicine has to go because we just can't just guess anymore what, what what because what works for person a may not work for person b or c uh, very very well put and these, these ranges I, I i had a friend who was 88 years old when i, I was in my 20s who was one of the board members of the anti-aging nonprofit group that i worked with and he was just so full of energy and he'd get really angry 
uh, when when he would look at lab levels and go, those jerks, they want me to have the testosterone levels of a 90-year-old. He's like, I, I don't want that. And he was dating a 36-year-old. <laughs> and he liked his testosterone to be like that of a 35-year-old guy. I don't, I mean, I, I can't imagine why, but, you know, his his ability to show up in the world was at least as good as mine. And just, it, I, I still remember that. His name was Mike. Uh, and uh, I, I really feel like like we are getting to that point where where doctors can look at ranges and have the the freedom of medical practice to say you know what you're within range but you have the symptoms like here have some thyroid already uh, but at the same time insurance companies get in the way of that um this may be something you have no comment on i'm not sure but i've thought for years hey if i ran a life insurance company i would take you know professor sinclair's list of 30 lab tests, or I'd take my own list, and I'd run it against everyone who wanted to get my insurance. And if your numbers looked really good, I'd charge you less. If your numbers looked bad, I'd charge you a little bit more. And I have just got a bunch of life insurance, and they're like 1960s lab data that they're basing everything on because their actuarial tables are from then. Are we going to see a, a change in our understanding of the risk of dying because of the work you and others in your field are doing, such to the point that we have a better predictive ability for someone? Yeah, 100%. That's the way the industry will go. It has to go that way. It has to be data-driven. Even going back to 1825 with Benjamin Gompertz in London, who figured out mortality curves uh, with an equation that was much better than just looking at tables of life history. He made a lot of money for his relatives, the Montefiores and the Rothschilds. That was a big revolution. The next revolution now is to individualize insurance with actual predictions, not just based on you know blood pressure and this kind of thing. So with that blood, the kind of blood data that I'm doing and, and you're doing, that'll be step one. But there's other measures of longevity now. We can measure the, the DNA methylation clock, what's called the, the epigenetic clock. Yes. I could take your blood, Dave, and I could say, within 5% error, when you're going to die. It's a scary thought, but we could do that now quite accurately. And there are clocks of blood, clocks of muscle, all sorts of clocks in animals, ranging from monkeys to bats to humans to dogs and sheep. And it's remarkably consistent. Insurance companies should go that way. And I think eventually we'll have to go that way to be able to price things that are individual because we're not all aging at the same rate. Now, one of the ideas of insurance is to share risk that's that's unknown. I, I'm hoping we get to a world where you can say, you know what? Your price for your insurance is X unless you take the steps we recommend or other steps of your choice to put your to, to change these variables so that they get better, right? Or and, and if the variables can't get better, maybe there's a maximum price for insurance that you know no one has to pay more than that because that's the point of insurance, right? I, I would I would hate to think of you know six people born who are just simply uninsurable at any price because of something that's entirely outside their control. Um, it seems like if you throw the, them out, the point of insurance goes down. But I'm I'm imagining a world in our lifetime, uh, David, where we're able to do that. Am I being too aggressive? Is this is this a in our lifetime kind of thing? Uh, I think it's 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 sooner than that. Uh, what one of the things that struck me was so my father is an extremely fit eighty year old uh, who if you didn't see him you just saw what he was doing you know you, you put a put a I wouldn't put a bag over his head but let's say you, you all you could see was his body moving around and and him talk you would say okay this guy's twenty or thirty years old. That's what he's like, if I can give wow. you an example. Now, I mean, he's fitter than me. I, I, I recently went to the gym with him and he, he kicked my butt. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's now on record. 
But here's the thing. He tried to get ins- insurance to travel. He comes to America every year. He travels around the world. He's very fit. Uh, he couldn't get insurance. It's very difficult if you're that age. But it's a blanket policy. Anyone over that age, we will not insure yeah. you. But that's crazy because my father is as seemingly as fit and healthy based on, based on his lifestyle, his blood work, as a 30, 40-year-old. You know, there are some 80-year-olds, of course, who are in wheelchairs. And that that's, of course, the difference. And insurance companies should be able to distinguish between those two types of people. Well, they they just about had a conniption. I just went through the, the arduous process of getting life insurance. And they're like, why do you go to all these doctors? And why do you get all these lab tests? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, nothing's wrong with me. And now we have evidence that nothing's wrong with me. In fact, I'm doing better than anyone else. Right. And, uh, but I mean, it, it took an extra six or nine months to get insurance because they just like, we have to get, look at all this data. Like, oh my God, what if there's something scary in here? And like, well, if so, then we would all know. Uh, and I did finally get the insurance, but man, it was, it was a fight. Uh, yeah. so we'll, uh, we'll see though. I, I think in the future, they'll be like, you're our best client because you, we have the data. So I, I'm hoping that what you're doing in the Sinclair lab is going to, to drive some of that knowledge. And one of the things that you're doing that you have talked about in other interviews that's in your book as well, but something I think listeners would love to hear about, talk to me about NAD plus and sirtuins. Uh, sure. So they're near and dear to my heart. So my, my history is that I was born in Australia. You can probably tell from my accent. Uh, when I moved to MIT in, uh, in Boston in 1995, our goal with my mentor, Lenny Garenti, was to figure out why do yeast cells get old? And we know at that time, nobody knew why any organism aged. So we figured out, first of all, why they age. It's got to do with a reorganization of what's called the epigenome and, and genes get uh, expressed when they shouldn't. But the, the point there is that the, the genes that controlled that and allowed the yeast cells to live longer when they were calorie restricted um, or, or fasted, as, as we would uh, now call it, there was a gene set that we discovered that or at least we we link to aging called the sirtuins, as you just mentioned. Now, the sirtuins, most people uh, haven't heard of sirtuins, but the sir part of that name stands stands for silent information regulators. And that's just a a long name for a gene that controls other genes, the epigenome. And so that was the first evidence that, A, we could understand why aging occurred. Second, why does calorie restriction provide health benefits, not because it's changing metabolism, slowing the cells down. In fact, it speeds them up metabolically. The reason is that it's turning on longevity genes like these sirtuin genes, sirtu. And then uh, the other point is that we could now potentially chemically control these sirtuins so that they they keep the right uh, genes on and off during aging and make the yeast cells or keep the yeast cells younger. And the first... uh, chemical that we discovered that could turn on the sirtuin pathway and mimic calorie restriction was resveratrol. And uh, that was 2003 in yeast. And then we went on to show that it could mimic calorie restriction in mice in 2006. Uh, But you mentioned NAD. Now, why is NAD just as interesting, if not more interesting than resveratrol? Okay. So there are seven sirtuin enzymes in our bodies. In, In yeast, there's five. So there's a whole family of these things. Resveratrol only, as far as we know, activates one of them, number one. But what about these other six in our bodies? Well, it turns out to to activate all seven of them, there is a way to do that. 
And the way we do that is to give them more of the fuel that they need. There's a little chemical in our bodies. There's a lot of it. There's a few grams of it in all of our body. I called NAD. And sirtuins don't work without NAD. Um, in fact, if we didn't have NAD, we'd be dead in probably 10 seconds. Yep. It'd be like taking cyanide. You need NAD for chemical reactions in the body, but also you need them. You need NAD to tell the sirtuins that you're fasted, you're calorie restricted, or you've been exercising. But you can fool the body into thinking you've been doing those things or augment a healthy lifestyle by keeping, we think, by keeping the levels of NAD higher than they would otherwise be. And actually think that in many of our tissues, in our muscles, uh, perhaps in other tissues, that NAD availability goes down with aging. And so that the older you are, probably the, the, the more important it is to augment the levels of NAD. So your sirtuin defenses remain active. And so you, you heal better and you actually, you don't tend towards getting diseases. I've had a, a couple uh, interviews on about directly taking NAD. It's something that we, we do at, at the Upgrade Labs, at the clinic at Upgrade Labs uh, in uh, at the Beverly Hilton, and, and something I've done at least 20 IV infusions of NAD, and I do sticks and topical and nasal sprays, and we've had some NAD supplements on, including ones you've been involved with, your NAD precursors like uh, nicotinamine riboside. Um, what's your favorite way of getting NAD if cost is not a problem? Um, well, so there's a lot of things that, that are out there. Um, and I'll just run through them before yeah. I tell you what, what I do. Uh, so you can take, or some people take high levels of vitamin B3. And there are two types. There's one called nicotinamide, one called niacin. Nicotinamide, um, I'm, I'm not a fan of in high doses. Yeah. Uh, because we, sh we showed in my lab in 2002 that it's actually an inhibitor of the sirtuin defense. Ooh, that, that's what they call no flush niacin. In other words, it doesn't really work, right? Cor correct. Well, so the field is still, I can't say anything definitive, but I'm going to tell you my best uh, answers based on having been in this field for the last 20, 25 years. Um, and so that caveat has to be said. There is no answer, but we, we're making progress. So nicotinamide I avoid in high doses. A little bit is going to be fine, of course, but like a vitamin. Nicot Tinic acid is interesting. It's been taken and prescribed, actually, for uh, cholesterol levels. It's, it seems to be quite effective, lowering cholesterol. But its downside is that you get flushing. Um, so I don't take that um, regularly. Now, the, the next one is nicotinamide, nicotinamide riboside. Dave, you mentioned that. That's called NR for short. Mm -hmm. um, and you're pretty well uh, known. You're, you're the guy behind that, I would say, in terms of research, right? Uh, well... Kind of. I, I don't, I'm not affiliated with nicotinamide riboside companies. I don't sell anything on the internet, despite what you might read. Mm -hmm. If you see a website with my name on it, there's even a company that uses my name. That's all BS. Wow. That's all just That's good. illegally using my name to sell their oh, products. The, the Dr. Oz effect you've got going on there. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And I just don't have enough money and time to be shutting them all down. Okay. They pop That's up really faster good than I know. can do. I've tried cease and desist letters, but it's it's expensive it, with lawyers. There's 14 books called The Bulletproof Diet that I didn't write on Amazon right now that are complete knockoffs of my work. And you know, you could spend millions of dollars swatting mosquitoes, but yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I also have a newsletter uh, on my website, okay. which so I'm trying to put out what's real and what isn't. Um, this is on your in, lifespan in book website. 
Yes. All right. So I, everyone listening right now has figured out like this guy is worth listening to. So lifespanbook.com, go there. I didn't even know you had a, a email list for, on there as well. Um, I would just say sign up for that. I, I definitely follow your research to be a variety of, of things. Um, and that's where your book launches as well as is, uh, lifespan book. Right. Okay. So, so the next molecule besides NR is called NMN. The long name is nicotinamide mononucleotide. And the body uses NMN to make NAD. So it's one step chemically back from NAD. Um, and NR is used by the body to make NMN. Does that make sense? So yeah. NR is turned into NMN, which is turned into NAD. Right. So you, we know that if you take NR or NMN, you'll raise your NAD levels. That's There's no question that's been done many times. Um, the question is, uh, which one works the best? And we don't know the answer to that yet. Um, I can tell you in my lab, we focused on NMN for a couple of reasons. One is NMN is chemically more stable on the shelf. Uh, and the other reason is that in, in a couple of experiments, such as endurance, treadmill endurance with a mouse, NMN worked worked better. But that's not, you know, I'm not, I'm not endorsing one or the other. I'm just saying that uh, this is where we are with the state of events. When your well, well, when your first NMN research came out, um, I sourced. I could only find some from China. I bought a kilo of it uh, and gave it to my dog for a while to see if anything bad happened and good things happened. So I took it. <laughs> I, I probably should have sent it to a lab to find out how much God knows what I was getting in there, but I couldn't find a good lab. So yeah. uh, I, I believe that there is merit to it. <laughs> We'll put it that way. Right. Well, NMN is currently more expensive than uh, NR, so people tend towards N NR. Uh, but yeah, what I'm trying to do with my research is to go as fast as I can to figure out wh what the safety is, what works, what doesn't. And so in my lab, we're doing a lot of mouse experiments, long-term mouse experiments, as well as short-term looking at endurance and reversal uh, and delaying of aging. Uh, and so one of the studies we put out recently last year was showing that mice that were given NMN for just a month ran much further on treadmills. They had better blood flow. They had new capillaries in their muscle. Um, and so I think that, that that looks really good and promising for people who have uh, bad circulation. It's not without risk, right? If you have a tumor growing in your body, you don't want more blood flow to it. Um, so we're also testing NMN in the context of cancer. Um, and so far, there's nothing that I've seen that, that concerns me. Um, I once actually had a, a reporter from the New York Times ask me, um, don't you think it's a conflict of interest that you're studying the molecule that you're also taking? And I said, absolutely not. Oh, I want to be the first person to know if there's a downside. Th um, thank you for doing that and saying that. Uh, one of the the biggest disappointments of, of any interview I've ever done out of 600 was uh, Andrew Newhouse from Vanderbilt, who's been studying nicotine, you know, very similar to nicotinamide in terms of receptors. But he's, he's like, oh, in 1988, I wrote the first paper showing that it was curing Alzheimer's disease. And at the end, I'm like, so do you have a nicotine patch on? You know, do you, you know, do you use an oral form? What do you do? And he's like, oh, I've never tried it. I, I wouldn't want to. I'm like, how can you, like, how can you do that? And I have a great respect for his research, and I like him and all. But I, the mindset there seems so foreign to me. As a researcher who doesn't touch the compounding research, how do you know what it what it does? So anyway, the people who criticize exactly. you, what planet are they from? So. Right. Well, well, I don't take crazy risks. Yeah. I, I study it. I find out what the risks are. 
uh, and then I try yeah. uh, try to be ahead of the curve. But also, I, I see things years ahead of the rest of the world and my colleagues. Um, and so my colleagues don't know what I know. And what I know is that we've been giving NAD boosters, this class of molecules is called NAD boosters. There's one called MIB626 that we've put into humans for at least a year now um, in clinical trials. And so we've got the data back on that. And there's nothing yet to concern me. Um, but, you know, I want your listeners to know that I'm doing very hardcore rigorous science in animals and in humans, in, in clinical trials, because I'm a scientist and I'm also concerned about human health. And that's my way of getting us to a future that I think we, we need to get to um, the best that I know the way I can do that as an individual and also try to bring the world up to speed in the knowledge that I think will progress the field forward. Uh, well, I applaud you uh, for your willingness to go out there and see, you know, hey, what is this going to do to me with rigor and, and curiosity? It's, uh, it is something that I think is missing sometimes. Um, another one of my, uh, my biggest uh, sort of letdowns, I had a chance to ask Craig Venter. Uh, you know, this is the guy who sequenced his first genome, and you know who he is, but for people listening who, who may not. Um, and I, I said, Craig, You've got 20 years of data on, on genetics here. Given the sum of your knowledge, is there anything that you think we should do more of or less of? What should we eat? Like, like what, what actionable information comes out of this? Or should we all eat pizza and beer and wait until more research is completed? And, and he looked at me and he said, let's sit down over pizza and beer and talk about it. And I'm like, no, <laughs> there has to be a directional thing we can do in the meantime while we wait for the holy grail. Exactly, because we were born one or two generations too early for a lot of this. But I still have colleagues who say, I wouldn't touch anything unless it's 100% proven to work. Now, that person <laughs> is going to be 100 years old at that point. Yes. That, that's their choice. Yeah. There's also the single variable thing. I'm going to find out the one thing that works. Like, I'm pretty sure that there's going to be this weird thing, but food and light in combination do different things. If you eat at midnight versus eat during the day. So how do you test one versus the other when it's the system of things that work? Uh, so the, the assumption that everything is single variable is also kind of flawed biologically. And as I get older, the more I see, the, the more I, I, I kind of doubt that just one thing is, is going to be the holy grail, uh, even though like you, resveratrol is kind of a good thing, but it's not the only thing. For sure. There's, there are so many variables. There, there are millions of variables. And we're not going to be able to try all these in mice, let alone humans, in within our lifetimes. So that's why I think we need to push the boundaries and, of, of science the way we're, you and I are doing that. Even in mice, let me give you an example. So in mice, what we typically do is we try one molecule or one genetic manipulation at a time. And that experiment takes about four or five years to complete once you've tested and done all the histology. That's one strain of mice, or maybe at best a few strains of mice, in one or, two, one or three labs, you know, and you do it iteratively, it's, it's sequentially. So we, we as, as, a, as a planet, we're not gonna get to understanding what the combination of these molecules is. We can barely know what one molecule does. We're just starting to combine two molecules, let alone three. But I think that that combination is what's going to be required to have the biggest impact because there's no one magic bullet. 
it feels like uh, we could probably talk for another hour or two. In fact, I'm going to see if I can get you uh, on the show for another interview uh, sometime when you've got more time. I know you're in the middle of talking about your book and all. But I have a, a big question for you uh, as we come up on the end of the show. And the question is one that I've been asking every guest since uh, since I started writing my book on longevity as well. Um, and this this interview, I'm telling you guys, read Lifespan. In fact, read Lifespan before you read Superhuman. <laughs> Just to be really clear, Lifespan is David's book and is awesome. And uh, David has way more um, way more credibility in the field than I do. And uh, and it's just it's worth your time and, it, and it'll it'll inspire you as well. Uh, but here's the big money question for you: How long do you think you're going to live? All right. Well, I'm definitely going to get this wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, me too. <laughs> and I, I'd I'd prefer to un- underestimate than overestimate. Otherwise, you know, can you imagine I, I, I walk out and I die tomorrow? People are going to go, "Aha, uh-huh, we knew we knew it wasn't going to work." <laughs> All right. So the s- simple answer is. Uh, so every every year or so, certainly every decade that goes by, uh, I get more. I'm more optimistic about my future. It's for two reasons. One is that I see how my health is doing relative to my peers, right? And it's a long term experiment. Mm-hmm. In my 30s, I couldn't tell what was going on because I was young and everyone else was. But as I'm getting older, uh, I am seeing possibly a difference here. Uh, I'm not terribly wrinkly. Not losing my hair much. I, I don't have a gray hair, so these are the early signs that maybe, maybe something is working. And my cardiovascular system is young, based on extensive tests and imaging. Um, and you know, by all accounts, I'm doing okay. It doesn't mean that I'm going to not get cancer tomorrow, but you know, everything is on track to live potentially to, you know, be healthy in my 90s into my hundreds. What gives me even more uh, optimism is my father is. Uh, very similar to me physically, biochemically. Uh, and he's so he's 30 years ahead of me exactly. And he's doing great. And uh, so I'm following this pretty much the same regimen that he is. And uh, if he's anything to go by, you know, I think he's got another 10, 20 years of life at least. Now, I'd love to be able to be healthy over 100 and, and outlive a lot of my enemies and, and the naysayers. <laughs> That's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping that this is going <laughs> to lead somewhere. Um, I'm not afraid of dying, by the way. Often people wonder, yeah. you know, maybe David is, is scared of death. That's not the case. It's not I, about that. It's not at all. I'm just curious, and I just want to see where humanity goes. I love seeing technology in the future. I want to be there to see a lot of it. Um, so that we'll see. No, let, let's put a number on it. Okay. Uh, 90 in good health and uh, optimistically making it to a century. So just to a century. Now, all right, we've got to go a little deeper on that. We have the, the lady who's 122, although you, you probably saw the very recent, as in the last three or four days, uh, shocking discovery about blue zones. Did you see this research? Uh, I've seen a lot. Which oh, one? Okay, so uh, what they found is that blue zones are usually poor and that there's a very large percentage of uh, poorly kept records in areas where there's blue zones. And as record keeping comes online, the number of super centenarians drops dramatically. Uh, in other words, there's insurance fraud and people taking over things for their parents and claiming that they're. <laughs> oh, Jean, Jean Calment um, was re- potentially replaced by her daughter. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, not just that one case, but there was a, a body of statistical evidence that shows that um, the number of crazy old people is is very much a function of how bad record keeping is uh, globally. Like every blue zone that they've identified also shared that that uh, that problem. So, but that said, I I think there are people who've made it to 120 out there. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but but just. Well, 117, well documented. Yeah, so even if they haven't made it to 122, that, that's not the point. So, so here, here's my question for you, though. Okay. I've I read your book. You talk about aging as a disease. You are, uh, let's see, you, you said you're 51? Just turned 50. Just yeah. turned 50. Okay, so we're about the same age. I'm, I'm 46. Okay, so you're 50. Now, you have another 50 years of what you've been doing before you're 100. And we know more now than we did last year, and it's going up exponentially. And you still think that the best you can do is 100? Uh, well, okay, there are some caveats to that or some, some, some qualifiers. If, if the recent breakthrough in my lab comes to fruition, then the, then the game changes quite considerably. Well, let's assume that it doesn't happen in your lab but it happens yes. in one of the hundreds of labs around the world that are working on all these different things, half of which you and me have never even heard of. I mean, don't you think someone's going to hit it if it's not you and that you think you're, pre you're pretty close if you haven't? Uh, just, just playing the odds. Right. Um, so if, if your listeners read my book, you'll, they'll see that in my lab and in about three others around the world, there's been a, a big breakthrough. And that's the one I'm referring to, which is reprogramming cells yes. to be young again. Yes. And that is the true aging reset. This isn't just delaying aging or making some cells healthier. This is actually going to the root core of what the, what ticks inside our cells and getting them to permanently be reset. If that works, and we've so far we've been able to reprogram the retina and get eyesight back in old mice. If we can reprogram the whole body to be young again, then then that's a game changer. Okay, and so somebody will figure this out, I think, in our lifetimes. And if that works, then I think another 10 or 20 years is quite feasible. Okay, so you're now getting up to about 120 sort of things with a, the caveat that if that works. And uh, my, my bet is that if that doesn't work, something else is going to work in the next 50 years. So we, we're, and, and by the time that happens, we'll get that extra 10 years, something else happened. Like we might be right near that escape yeah. velocity. I, I could be more optimistic. Uh, I have uh, I have that other four years of living to do before I get to be fifty uh, and, and lose my optimism. But I'm yeah, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm the most well. I'm still optimistic. I'm not losing not it. at all. <laughs> uh, but but what I'm what I'm cognizant of is um, I don't want to come across as being a futurist. Yeah. That, that's crazy. I want to be grounded in science, and so everything I say has okay. to be fact based. I'm also you know I'm told by my colleagues that. If I say that someone born today could live to 150, I get this hate mail from my colleagues saying, hey, David, that's not a good look. Uh, and so <laughs> I want people to know that there's there's this thing called academic freedom, but we're actually not that free. We're being monitored by our colleagues and judged. Yeah. But that said, the reason that I, I still stand by that prediction is that I'm not saying we're all going to live to 150 necessarily. I'm not even say, saying I'm going to live to 150. I'm saying that someone born today is going to celebrate New Year's uh, for sure, in uh, you know the year, uh, you know twenty one hundred and thirty probably. Okay. Like you say, Dave, the technology in in those those days is going to look like you know antibiotics weren't even discovered in our times. Right. And so they'll have the ability to to go. It'd be like asking people in the seventeen hundreds um, 
what's the chance of going to the moon? Of course, they'd say <laughs> that's farcical. Um, but if you ask the Wright brothers, which is the equivalent of what we're at now, they would say, yeah, why not? We can fly. We'll figure this out one day. I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it within the century to come. Uh, what what a beautiful way of, of positioning it. Uh, and you're right. It's possible I won't live to 180, which is my number. Uh, and uh, but, but will someone relatively soon? It, it seems like the the answer is that we're going in that direction. And I would I, I volunteer to be that person, <laughs> and so do you. Uh, and I feel like you and me and and many of the others in our community have a higher likelihood of doing that because we know more and we have access to the tools. Um, but and we, and we share that access so they can become tools for everyone. Uh, uh, you know, David, I, I just want to thank you for your work. Your new book, Lifespan. Uh, it, it's one of those those books that really, uh, really excites me, inspires me. Uh, when you talk about you know, the information theory of aging, which we didn't even get into in this interview because I want people to read about it in the book, uh, and you talk about the ability to reset the clock in the body, um, I'm, I've never been more excited about living a longer, better life uh, than I have now, and uh, your book just added uh, gasoline to the fire. So thank you for writing it instead of keeping it in a medical journal somewhere. Uh, you, you made the right call. <laughs> Oh, thanks, Dave. It's It's been fun and a real pleasure to be on. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, you know what to do. Seriously, go out there and buy Lifespan. And it's on anywhere books are sold, uh, as you'd expect. And while you're at it, pick up a copy of Superhuman. You are not going to read the same thing in both books. You'll see some common discussions around sirtuins and whatnot. Uh, you'll learn something from each of them. You're, we're going to agree on many things, but not everything, uh, particularly around fasting. I think we're going to agree but whatever the deal is, if you tune in, check out some of the other interviews uh, that Dr. Sinclair has done, you're going to learn a lot. And just understand, your ability to control the quality of your aging is clearly already out there. And your ability to control how long you're going to live is coming online right now. And this is one of the preeminent researchers in the field. So become familiar with his work. It will make your life richer. Have a beautiful day. Oh, and I forgot to tell you, if you read Lifespan and you like it, you have a moral obligation to leave a review on Amazon. It's that big of a deal. Uh, when a professor from Harvard takes the time to write a book for us, not for colleagues, he wants to know, hey, did I do a good job? Did you like it? Was it worth your time? Uh, and the same thing for my books. So if you like a book, one of the cheapest and easiest ways you can show gratitude is just leave a review. Uh, and by the way, showing gratitude makes you age less. So everybody wins. <laughs> now have an awesome day. A human upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services.
Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.